Welcome to Saving the Game. This is episode 63, An Introduction to Role-Playing Games. Recorded May 21st of 2015, with your hosts, Grant, Peter, and Jason. Welcome to Saving the Game, I'm Grant. I'm Peter. And I'm Jason. So we've got Reverend Jason Wood with us tonight, also known as the Mad Cleric. Jason, tell us who you are and why you're famous on the internet. <laughs> I think famous would be quite a stretch, but we, we'll pretend for tonight, sure. Uh, well, I'm a husband, father of two, and a full-time pastor that also plays tabletop role-playing games. I have been for the last four years, uh, starting with Dungeons & Dragons, so... You know, I'm uh, I'm busy. <laughs> yeah. But I get a game in here and there. But I'm also a writer for the Mad Adventurers Society, which you can find at madadventurers.com. It's a great website, a really friendly online community for gamers that really kind of emphasizes tabletop RPGs with board games and the occasional video game as well. But there I write a weekly article called The Mad Cleric. Uh, and in that article, I talk about my experience as a gamer uh, but also as a pastor, trying to help people not only improve their gaming, but also their personal lives. And it's been a lot of fun. Been doing that for about a year and a half now, I guess. Yeah, and I've really enjoyed those articles. They're a lot of fun. I know we've shared out a few on our various social media feeds. Yeah, and we appreciate that a lot. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's content that I think all of our listeners would find interesting. So, hey, there we go. Yeah, there's a near 100% overlap between us and you. So Yeah, pretty close. Uh, and a lot of the other folks at Mad Adventurers I'm big fans of as well. Yeah. The Angry GM is a guilty pleasure, not going to lie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel guilty about enjoying him at no, all. He's, what are he's you very about? good, and he's got a lot of really insightful stuff. A uh, number of the other writers on there, too, I'm big fans of, so... Yeah, it's a great group of, group of folks over there, and uh, I think a lot of your listeners would enjoy it. Yeah, and I think Angry actually uh, has worked through the entire Saving the Game backlog, which is really awesome. No kidding. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I know at one point he said he was working the way through the backlog. That's Very pretty cool. cool. And I know you also have a website, madcleric.com. Is that just a copy of the stuff you write for Mad Adventurers, or is there different content? That was different content. I was trying that at the, kind of at the beginning of this uh, year, but I found in terms of blogging, it was just taking too much time away from stuff I need to be doing here at home. Fair enough. So I've put that to rest for the time being. Okay, so just Mad Adventurers and the Mad Cleric column there. There you go. Okay, cool. Do we have any other news and notes, Peter? No, um, we're still going to saving the or saving the game. We're still going to fear the con. Beyond that, I really don't think we've got anything. Okay, fair enough. Well, let's get right into it, because we've got a big topic, shall we say. I'm going to start us off with Proverbs here, if y'all don't mind, as we get into our scripture. This is Proverbs 27:17. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. This is Mark 12, 28-31. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And our next passage is Luke 5, 27-32. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. 
Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who belonged to their sect, complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And our last bit of scripture is Romans fourteen sixteen. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. So our topic tonight is, in a sense, a reprise or perhaps a companion to our very first episode. Uh, our, that very first episode was, Are RPGs Evil? And we basically replied no and told everybody why for an hour and a half of really scratchy audio because I didn't know how microphones worked. But with this episode, we wanted to back up a little bit and create a resource for people who have no idea what a tabletop role-playing game is and don't know why they should be playing them or why someone else that they know is playing them. Maybe they're worried about them. Maybe they're just like, well, what is this? And maybe you've been given this podcast episode by somebody who plays games and, you know, it's kind of a way to say, hey, this is what role-playing games are, which is awesome. Now, longtime listeners may be thinking, oh, this isn't an episode for me. No, you're wrong. What we're going to get into is why games like the games we play are so important and the stories that we tell with those. And so what I want you guys to do, if you're longtime listeners who know what role-playing games are and love them, is go to the comments in this episode and give your own reasons why. What you get out of role-playing, why they're fun, what role-playing games mean to you. The whole point of this episode is as a resource for people who have no idea what role-playing games are. And to hear your stories and see them there in the comments is going to be really important and really awesome. So yeah. please help us out. Help new gamers out. This is a way to say, hey, welcome to the hobby. Just to kind of sum up what Grant said, we've answered our RPGs evil. Now we're answering why are they good? Yeah. That first episode was kind of a negative kind of defensive tone, which is why we brought Reverend Wood on to explain in a more positive tone why they're awesome. So. Let me ask you something first, real quick, just off the top of your head, one sentence, two sentence definition, what is a role-playing game to you guys? What I usually tell people, whether in my family or in my church, because everybody in, in the church that I, where I'm a pastor, they know that I play role-playing games. It's very open. People don't necessarily understand all of it, but I explain it as collaborative storytelling. It's five, six people sitting around a table telling a story together, and there's one person that has kind of laid out the basic uh, structure of the story. Maybe they have challenges that are being presented to the other characters in the story, but each person at the table fills a role in, as a character in that story and responds to the challenges given to them. That's how I would define it. That's how I try to explain it to people. They do look at me kind of confusedly, but um, that's really what it is at its core. I would say it's an exercise in collaborative storytelling with some sort of mechanical element to adjudicate anything where there is uncertainty, risk, or a potential conflict between multiple participants as to what would happen. All good definitions. What would yours be? Well, collaborative storytelling, I think, is the phrase that we've all kind of landed on here. But to define that a little better, we're talking about storytelling as a group, rather than one person sitting down and controlling everything about all the characters, like a author of a novel or a script writer, something like that, or not quite like an, you know, an improv theater thing where 
people are just inventing things wildly on the fly. It's group storytelling where we sit down and say, all right, we've got a story in this world with these characters. Let's play that out. And each person has a character, like you said, Jason, and nobody really owns the story. Everybody's contributing to the story and how people react to it. Typically, there is one person who establishes the world that everybody plays in, but even that is not necessarily specific to that one person. Everybody interacts with it as either that game master, the person who's responsible for the world, or as players of those individual characters. So there's two pieces of this that we need to explain. First, rules, and the second is settings. Why do we have rules in a game like this, right? If we're doing something where we're just sitting down and telling a story, why do we need rules at all? Well, kind of going back to the definition that I gave, you're going to want some uncertainty. You're going to want some tension. Mm -hmm. Or there's going to be some tension there already, and you need something to adjudicate it in a fair manner. Usually it takes the form of some kind of random number generator, dice, cards. There's one particular strange but very cool game out there that uses a Jenga tower, actually. <laughs> yep. I'm a big fan of Dread. Uh, there are other games where you have resources to spend for successes. The old Marvel role-playing game that had tokens, for example. But by and large, it's usually some sort of weighted random number generator. You're right. One other case about why we need rules. Basically, if you've got two people who are both trying to succeed at something and they can't both succeed, how do you decide, right? Yeah. Uh, maybe that's a, a non-player character and a player character. Maybe it's two player characters. It can even be two non-player characters. I have seen that. Yeah, but that's... <laughs> rare. It, it is possible, <laughs> but a uh, little boring. Um, it, it's pretty rare. <laughs> yeah. Essentially, when we're talking about role-playing, getting into character, in a sense, we're kind of playing pretend in the same way that, you know, six-year-olds running around in a field, you know, pretending to be soldiers and shooting each other are playing pretend, right? We're We're stepping into a role and we're doing things. But unlike six-year-olds who quickly devolve into, nah, I shot you, nah, uh, you didn't, nah, I've got a force field that uh, makes me immune to bullets, nah, uh, you don't, I've got something that goes around force fields and back and forth and back and forth. We have rules to adjudicate if there's conflict, if there's tension, if there's indecision, we find some way to decide that and then everybody moves on rather than arguing. You can think about the rules almost like guardrails to protect against just devolving into utter chaos. You know, the rules don't absolutely demand that you must do X, Y, and Z. They don't determine what a player can do or can't do, but it can keep you from, what's the word? Wasting time? Yeah, exactly. Wasting time and taking advantage of other players at the table as well. It's a shared experience, not something that one person is supposed to dominate, you know? Right. And certainly it reduces the amount of arguing at the table, which is important <laughs> because like you said, it prevents wasting time. In some cases, there will be situations where you're kind of picking from a flexible list of rules or options as far as what you can do. But even then, there's a lot of wiggle room in what you can do in a given scenario or situation. Should we give an example of some kind and put some meat on those bones? Yeah, sure. Yeah, definitely. I don't have one. Okay. Good. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, in that case, um, Grant, why don't we, uh, why don't we use the shadow run game that just kind of Went on hiatus recently. Yeah, actually, I feel that's like a perfect plenty example there. because if we're talking about hacking, uh, Shadowrun, just for the uninitiated, is kind of a dystopian cyberpunk future setting uh, with magic and other assorted craziness. Very Neil Stevenson, William Gibson kind of a setting. With some fantasy elements layered on top. Yeah. 
And so there's a lot of hacking into computers and being all cyberpunky, just like we were in the 80s and 90s. Hooray. <laughs> I love Shadowrun. Don't get me wrong. I tease it because I love it so much. So, you know, if you're doing a, a hacking thing, if you are a character who is plugged into a computer trying to manipulate this computer system with your mind, there are a huge variety of things you can do, but you can't do everything. You can't, for example, get up and run away while still hacking. Well, it depends on which version of Shadowrun you're playing, but you're generally correct. Well, yes, but the point is, you're really in a scenario where you can do a lot of different hacking things but very relatively few non-hacking things, and that's by choice, and that's say, okay, I've, this is what I'm doing. Combat is another common situation where this crops up. I've got different moves I can do. I'm going to talk while I do it. Well, talking is not, strictly speaking, a combat move, but certainly it happens a lot, and there's a lot of role-playing that can happen in a duel or something like that. Yeah, and I think just in terms of, like, uh, here's an example of if there were no rules and you're playing in a fantasy setting, something maybe like Lord of the Rings, and you have an archer, a person's playing a character that's an archer, and they say, well, I'm going to shoot that orc in the chest. Mm -hmm. Well, are you? <laughs> <laughs> let's see, let's let's roll a die. Let's let's use the rules here to see if your character is able to do that. Otherwise, if it would just be kind of this, uh, uh, you have fiat, where the, the players just say, this happens, this happens, this happens, and uh, it adds a, not only the chance into it, um, but it adds color to it as well. Right. And typically these rules are, to a certain degree, simulationist. We're trying to simulate how the world behaves, specifically the world that we are playing in, how it behaves. These are more or less detailed, depending on the style of the game. Uh, some games from different eras were extraordinarily detailed and, in many ways, tediously detailed. Others are extremely abstract and focus just on the narrative with just a nod given to rules for individual events. And that's actually a fairly recent phenomenon. It is. Um, the, the far more simulationist stuff was kind of the early days of the hobby, the 70s up through the early 90s. and mm, Even into the 2000s, but yeah. Yeah. You started to see the shift happening kind of in the, the mid to late 90s and then... Since the turn of the century, you've seen a lot more of the, the heavier story stuff, um, yeah. Fate, mm -hmm. Fiasco, uh, some of those other, even Savage Worlds, I would say, applies to a certain extent in that it's a lot more rules light than some of the other more crunchy things like GURPS or Hero System or even old school D&D. Right. And that really stems from a recent phenomenon in role-playing games where people have realized, wait, we are not just actors in a story, we are people helping to tell the story, so let's have rules that are in some ways about the narrative as much as about individual character actions. Yeah. Now, we were talking about setting, where stories happen, the, the rules of the world we're in. All fiction involves setting, information about what the world is like and how it functions. Unless we're telling non-fiction stories, recounting events that have actually happened, there's always a little bit of abstraction and fiction and fantasy in how the world that we're writing about works. I would say even in the nonfiction. I mean, talk to any veteran police officer about witness accounts of a crime. Well, sure. Mm. But since we're talking about a, a hobby that's all about fiction, let's stick with that. 
<laughs> yeah, fair enough. It's just in, in any storytelling that humans do, an element of fiction will creep in, whether that's the teller's intention or not. Oh, okay, fair point. But even nearly realistic genres of fiction have their own conventions and rules for how they work. Romantic yeah. comedies don't really work like real life. Spy thrillers don't really work like real life. They're supposed to be the real world. There's no orcs. There's no space aliens. But the rules aren't quite real. They have their own explanation and their own traditions of how stories in those settings go. And that's true of speculative fiction like science fiction and fantasy. Yeah, particularly in the romantic comedy example, that actually has a straight-up formula that's necessary for you to adhere to in order to make it work. Right. We're basically saying we accept that the rules are a little different from the real world in this story. And that's the setting. It's not just rules, it's also era, the far future, how we think it's going to be, or the past, how we think things were in a given time. And all of these have assumptions about what's real. And that setting frames stories in particular ways. You can tell the same story in different settings, but in doing so, you'll emphasize different parts of that same story. <laughs> a Western romance is very different from a Cold War Berlin romance. It's got a different tone. It's got a different emphasis on elements of that romance. It's still a romance. It may even have the same characters if you did the same story twice, but you're going to have a different story. Yeah, if you think about Star Wars, for example, Star Wars is a Western samurai movie in space. <laughs> you could take that story and put it in, in another setting, but you would have to tweak some things that just wouldn't fit the same way. Yeah, well, that's a particularly good example because you'll, if you look around the internet, you'll see people who've done just that. Like, mm -hmm. You know, steampunk versions of, you know, Darth Vader and Obi-Wan Kenobi and stuff. And it's like, yeah, this is a very archetypal story. Here, look how much it can be. You know, adapted. Well, and it's funny you said Samurai. There's a famous example of this from film. Seven Samurai was genre swapped to the Magnificent Seven. Yep. You have a Samurai movie taken into this, you know, high Western feel, and it changes the feel of the movie, but the story is the same. Different things are emphasized, but the meaning is pretty close. Well, if you have Star Wars fans listening to the podcast, they should look up a film called The Hidden Fortress. It's an Akira Kurosawa film, another samurai movie. I think he did Seven Samurai, if I'm accurate. Yes. But George Lucas was immensely influenced by that movie, and there are, there are shots in that movie where suddenly you realize, he totally ripped this off. There you go. <laughs> now, the, the flip side of this is that when we use settings like this, we can present these familiar stories and this is a, an important thing for our Christian listeners, stories that are so familiar that we've kind of stopped listening to them, we get to hear them in new ways and learn from them again. And that's very valuable because we tend to build up, I'm going to say kind of a, a resistance, almost like a callus when we hear the same story over and over and over. You're a pastor. I'm sure you've occasionally noticed that, you know, I keep saying this thing and nobody hears it. Let me find a different way to say it so that when I say it again from the pulpit, I'm saying the same thing, but people hear it a different way because I've phrased it differently. I've said it differently. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, this is time for that C.S. Lewis quote, isn't it? Uh, yeah, probably. I was going to save it, but all right, why not? There's a quote that we use all the time on this show. And actually, I say all the time. I don't think we've used it in like the past 10 episodes. No, we've been remiss. 
we're terrible, Peter. Terrible. <laughs> this is a quote from uh, C.S. Lewis's review of The Lord of the Rings. The value of myth is that it takes all the things you know and restores to them the rich significance which has been hidden by the veil of familiarity. And Lewis is saying essentially what we just said, that when you hear a, a mythic version of a story that you have heard over and over and over, all of a sudden it's new again. And it means something that maybe you missed before. Now, to get back to role-playing games, we've been talking about different types of settings, and that's for a reason. Role-playing games can take place in any setting imaginable. High fantasy, 30s pulp adventure, uh, grim, dark, far futures, hopeful futures, alien worlds, prehistory, superheroes, whatever you can think up, it's there because essentially we're talking about what kind of story do I want to tell. Yeah. Disney-esque talking animals on a pirate ship. I have played that twice. It's one of my favorite games of all time. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Zombie survival horror. I've played that. And immediately before that, I played extremely silly games about changing a light bulb. Now, there are specific game products that are usually designed for specific settings. The most famous of this, of course, is Dungeons & Dragons, which is specifically designed for a type of high fantasy mostly derived from J.R.R. Tolkien's work with some other influences. Jack Vance, Michael Moorcock, uh, C.S. Lewis, etc. Yeah. All of the major comic book companies have their own role-playing game systems designed to play in their specific worlds. Aces and Eights is 1800s, Westerns. Uh, you name it, there's a system specific to it there are also a large number of systems designed to be flexible used in any setting and basically be as generic as possible they have less specific rules but there's an advantage of familiarity with those rules it gives you a sandbox to play in right it also allows you to play kitchen sink settings which will pull in a lot of elements from different types of fiction so if you want to jam science fiction and fantasy together you can do that if you want to you know take multiple different types of fantastic elements you've got rules for not only those elements individually but you've got a very good chance of having rules for how they interact exactly which can be really handy because then you don't have to come up with it all yourself <laughs> yeah very so, true feel free to uh, edit this out but are you talking about burning wheel I, 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 that would be the only thing come to mind with that what what uh, system are you talking about gurps Oh, I've heard about GURPS, but I've never really messed around with it. I'll check it out. Yeah, I would say GURPS and Hero System would probably fall under that. Both of those are extremely crunchy and simulationist. Savage Worlds has some of that as well. Mm -hmm. Anything designed yep. as a universal system will have rules for different types of play. I would actually even say uh, D20 has that yeah. once um now that d20 modern is out there between what watsi themselves put out in the 3.5 era and all of the other stuff from kind of the d20 boom that happened mm -hmm. you've probably got the ability to use that as a, a universal system with a little bit of extra work yeah, possibly i think we're getting a little deep in the weeds here but you can certainly no, make it work total caveat sorry about that no that's fine so we've we've dumped a lot of information on you here Right, mostly about rules and setting, what these things are. Let's talk about why role-playing games are so much fun. Because they are so much fun. Seriously. They're great. Yeah, all three of us have been doing them for over a decade. Yeah. Jason, when you sit down to play a role-playing game, what draws you to that table? Man, there's so many things going through my head right now. Uh, first of all, I'm doing it to relax. For me, it's a way to kind of just 
unplug from all the busyness going on with with work and with family and that sort of thing and just to kind of enjoy my evening. Uh, when my group plays, it's usually about a three-hour session. And so it'd be the same as going to the movies or something like that. You're participating in this story. Uh, you just have a little more input than you normally do. Um, and it's also a way for me to hang out with my friends, the people that I play with or people that I see either around town if they're local. Occasionally I play online with like my brothers and friends from seminary and that sort of thing. And so it's also a way for me to keep in touch with some of those folks. Mm -hmm. um, so you're able to be creative with your friends, relaxing and enjoying your evening. So for me, that's a big part of, of why I play. It's just uh, it's it's rest. Peter? Well, I agree with a lot of what Jason said. The weekly game that our gaming group has gives me an opportunity to hang out with some of my closest friends who live in other parts of the country. So that's kind of cool. Uh, we can all get together and um, via a Google Plus Hangout and do something that we enjoy together once a week. So that's that's really valuable for keeping those friendships alive. It's also a really nice creative outlet. Whether you are the GM and you're making up all of the world stuff and you know running different NPCs, or whether you're playing in it and you're trying to figure out how to react to the stuff that the GM and the other players are throwing at you, it really lets you get in there and flex those creative muscles. I think my writing is better for having been a role player for years. Uh, it's it's gotten me to think about some of the kinds of situations that can come up and how you want to handle those, what success and failure looks like. It's just a lot of fun in both the social and creative ways. And I think it's also it's also a kind of socialization that's very introvert friendly because you're doing something the the social interaction isn't as awkward. Uh, mm -hmm. you're, you're all there around something that you have in common already and that you enjoy already, which helps you get past the small talk about weather and current events in your town and, you know, what the local sports ball team is doing and get into something that you're all a little more comfortable going deeper on. Yeah. Uh, I, I realize an extrovert's mileage may vary there, but I really well, I mean like that aspect of it, too. As an extrovert, one thing that I've learned is that the gaming community, by and large, is very, very inclusive and very, very kind. And so even if I'm playing with people that I don't know well, if it's just a pickup game at the local shop or something like that, you're going to interact with people across age range, across uh, gender divide, uh, religious divides. It's it's just a really cool way to interact with a lot of different kinds of people. Um, and uh, I don't know. I, I've found that to be a really neat part of it. You just meet some really different folks, and it's a very inviting community to be a part of. I would definitely agree. Uh, just the little five-person gaming group that Grant and I are in, we have three Christians of two different types. We've got one agnostic, and we have a, a pagan. <laughs> and we've got three men and two women in that group. So, yeah, I mean, even a small gaming group can be fairly diverse and the gaming kind of provides the social glue that gets everybody talking and everybody to be friends. Mm -hmm. I'd say for me, it's two things. First, it's fellowship. Fellowship with people that are good friends and, in many cases, people who I haven't met yet, but who are about to be good friends for the next couple of hours mm -hmm. uh, because we're going to sit down and role play together and it's going to be awesome. And the other big thing for me is just the drama and excitement and humor of telling a good story. 
there's a lot of fun in entertaining other people. Now, I'm saying this mostly as somebody who has learned to really enjoy running games, but even as a player, I've had tremendous fun playing that character and being there to help amuse and entertain and get involved in storytelling with other people and ending up with a wonderful story that can never be replicated again because it was specific to that place and time and those sets of people. And it's fantastic. I do like the creative part of it, but by and large, it's capturing that moment and that story. That's really what does it for me. And I have found that I think we have a tendency sometimes to think of games as something just for children. Mm. This is a hobby that only gets better with age and life experience, much in the same way that many of the best actors are people who have had long and full lives because they have so much life experience to draw on. Role-playing games are a certain type of theater at their best. And so you have all this life experience to put into that character and it's fantastic. Uh, I am a far better role player now than I was 10 years ago when I started. Something else that Jason mentioned that I want to come back around to, the community is a reason all to itself. I would be hard-pressed to think of a hobby that has a nicer group of people associated with it. Overall, I mean, there's jerks and everything, but by and large, the gaming community, particularly the... I would say serious enough to listen to podcasts about it. Gaming community has <laughs> yeah. proven to be really nice people. Oh, they're, yeah. they're by and large fantastic people and they're people really worth getting to know. I've never sat down at a table and been disappointed, you know, except for one very specific and rather awkward case where we found just one person who is that bad apple in amongst a fantastic group of people. And, you know, that happens sometimes, but I am, the better for knowing the rest of that table. And I wish I'd stayed in touch with that other guy because he was the kind of person who needed help not being ignored. Yeah. One other small note about it. I would say role-playing games are potentially one of the least expensive hobbies you can get into. <laughs> they can also be one of the most expensive hobbies you well, can get into. But... <laughs> I don't know. There's war gaming and collectible card games. But yeah, okay, you, know, you the, got me there. The point is, theoretically, you need a book and some dice and you have an infinite number of stories to enjoy. That's it. I mean, that's all you need. The vast majority of everything happens in that collective space around the table, whether that's a virtual table or a kitchen table or what have you. That's all you really need. And it's great, especially if you were looking for something to do with lots of people and kind of introduce people to it, or you know, if you're looking for something to get groups of people into, it's very cost-efficient fun. Yeah, I, I I would agree with, with the caveat that if you start getting serious about it, you're probably going to start having additional books and the price can go up. Well, but, sure. Yeah. I mean, but that's true of everything, you know. Yeah. Let me put it this way. The cost of entry is extremely low. Oh, yeah. That's almost nothing. Yeah, it, it can be free if you're playing with people that have books already and can lend them to you, you know? Yeah, and this is yeah, not, exactly. it's not like a video game where you each have to have a copy of the game. And something to play it on. Right, you know, you don't each have to buy a movie ticket. If somebody's got a book, that book is still good wherever you take it, however long it's been in print. And you only need one person with a book, theoretically, just share it around. Certainly, I've done it. 
What's cool is, you know, you take those stories with you. You and your friends are going to go back and talk about, oh, you remember that time when so-and-so did such and such? You know, it's really neat just to think back and remember these awesome stories that you didn't just watch. You were a part of that. You you helped create that story with your friends. Mm -hmm. There's something really rich and rewarding about that, I think, just as not as a, a Christian, just as a person. Yeah. I think there's something really human about that. There's something really... Uh, now I'll talk about the Christian. There's something really redemptive about that too, I think. Yes, easily. Yeah. As I've gotten to be a better gamer, I have enjoyed movies and TV shows less because I'm used to a to having an active role in those stories and not just sitting and passively consuming them. Mm -hmm. it's, it's been interesting. And books tend to be different for me. Uh, something, uh, maybe just because I grew up a voracious reader, but with... I really want to get into the story and kind of play it out and contribute to it instead of just sitting there watching and being told what happens. Well, you tend to consume media with new eyes once you've been gaming for a while. True. I mean, for instance, just this past weekend, I went and saw Mad Max Fury Road, and I'm sitting there taking mental notes like, that would be good in a game, that would be cool in a game, that would be cool <laughs> in a game. <laughs> yeah. Now, we've been talking about why they're fun. But I think we've hit a bit on why role-playing games are useful and valuable, especially in that Christian framework. The biggest thing for me is empathy. There's a reason I chose Mark 12, 2831 as a, a verse for this episode. Of Those two commandments that Christ calls out. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. Those two together are why role-playing is so valuable, because by stepping into a character and solving those problems, we take on that other person, and they are ourselves. We love them as we love ourselves, because they're one and the same, at least for a couple hours a week. You know, we've been that neighbor for a little while, and that empathy is incredible, it's a great way to really understand other people who have problems that we never experience, but we have willingly stepped into in a role-playing game. You've silenced us. Sorry. Yeah, no, that was... That, <laughs> I, I definitely agree. I'm just trying to figure out where to go from here. Fair enough. Well, then, let me also say that there's also an element of, I'm going to say, moral practice in role-playing games. If you go into it trying to put this front and center, you're going to fail. Much in the same way that if you're trying to put anything ahead of telling a good story and enjoying that fellowship together, you're going to end up with something mediocre and preachy. But there's a tremendous joy in being presented with a difficult moral puzzle in a role-playing game. Being put between a rock and a hard place and finding the right way out of that scenario. <laughs> being put between a rock and a hard place and realizing that you have a chisel? Uh, yeah. You know, or that you can climb out or, you know, whatever metaphor you want to use. Uh, it gives us a chance to practice difficult decisions. N.T. Wright wrote an excellent book that one of the other guests we've had on this show, Derek White, himself a pastor, he recommended to me. Um, it's called After You Believe, and it's a book about virtue, essentially saying that virtue is good habits that we've built up, that second nature. You know, our first fallen nature is pretty terrible. But by practicing virtue, we develop this second nature of responding in a Christ-like manner to situations and really knowing what the right solution is without being legalistic and without being vulnerable to the whims of what we happen to be feeling at that moment. It's understanding difficult situations. 
role-playing games give us a chance to practice that to a degree. They also teach us. Uh, they teach us a great deal, aside from just, you know, how do we deal with situations. There are a number of life skills that role-playing games have. And I think this sure, is yeah. really valuable if you're in an educational position, church leadership, anything like that. You're looking for something to help teach people. Because role-playing games encourage creativity. They encourage problem-solving, specifically problem-solving as a group, which is difficult at the best of times to teach. Basic social interaction skills. They'll, they'll teach you to deal with failure in a mature way. Mm -hmm. um, they'll even teach you some math skills, particularly if you're playing a little bit what's known as a crunchier system that has a lot of rules for various things. Yeah, lots of math. I can do a lot of dice math in my head, which is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you guys have heard about this, but there are actually some therapists now who are using tabletop role-playing games to help, in particular, children uh, work through challenges they've had in their life and things that they're struggling with. Are you perhaps talking about the Bodana group? Yes, actually. Yeah, we had Jack Birkenstock on in episode 25. Oh, no kidding. Yep. yep. Uh, we've actually been fundraising for the Bodana group the past two years every Christmas. That's awesome. We love them. It, it allows people to kind of work through these really challenging, even risky situations in a safe environment. And it helps them not only recover from things that have happened in their past, but it also enables them to move forward into the future and maybe make better decisions when they're faced with similar sorts of situations, you know. And uh, I, I've not been able to work that into my ministry at present, but it's something I continue to think about. How could this be used to help especially uh, children that have had uh, challenging pasts? Yeah. If you're in a similar position to Jason, go to the Bodana Group's website, which is thebodhanagroup.org, or just look up episode 25 on our website and listen to that episode. Jack does a great job describing what the Bodana Group does, how their, their approach uses role-playing games, and how to put some of that into practice. I would be so bold as to say track Jack down on social media if you've got questions for him. He's a wonderful guy and very easy to talk to. Yes, very much so. And I know they are working on a book. So Yeah, which That's I am great. salivating to get my hands on when oh, they're I finished know, me with too. it. It's going to be awesome. But here's the thing. What are we talking about? We're talking about stepping into people's shoes and learning skills to help us overcome these extraordinarily difficult topics. The Bodana Group works with children who have been abused sexually or who are themselves sex abusers, which is a very underserved group of people who need help. And role-playing games have something to offer both of those. It's, you know, here's a scenario. Can you give up that control? Can you take control back? And often they're dealing with it very obliquely, just trying to help people get back to normal. And there's that level of abstraction in a role-playing game that I think can be very helpful. When you're on a stage acting things out, doing drama therapy, it's very personal. When you have rules to help filter things, sometimes it's a little safer. It's an easier way to approach things. Well, and let's not forget they also serve a third group of people, which is other helper class people, emergency workers, therapists, that sort of thing that are going through compassion fatigue. Yes. Mm. Not sure how much they're using role-playing games in that capacity, but it wouldn't surprise me if they were. I'm sure he's thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Rest and relaxation. Jason, you've hit on this a lot, and I think that's really important because it's a way for people to recharge and have fun. And it's dedicated time where you're meeting regularly most of the time. To make it happen. Yeah. And the last thing that's really, really important, it's something Peter has hit on, fellowship not just with Christians, but with non-Christians. It's a chance to meet people kind of on an equal footing and really get to know them. MJ Young, who is the chaplain of the Christian Gamers Guild, has always said that 
to a certain degree, the moral panic of the 80s when we said, no, 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 no Christians should be playing role-playing games, these are terrible things, you know, burn your Dungeons and Dragons books, etc., had a negative effect in that we basically said, when people are at the gaming table and these difficult topics that we've been talking about through this episode come up, all of a sudden we've said, there should be no Christians at the gaming table to answer those questions. Hmm. It's an opportunity to interact and have fellowship with people who need to have, you know, someone in their life who has answers and, you know, whatever they need at that time, we should be there. When you're sitting down at a role-playing game, you're having fun with them and you, you make yourself available. The nice thing about gaming is I've got a bunch of people that I consider friends that are of radically different philosophical outlooks for me. Um, if I just go through my list of people that I interact with regularly on social media, there's a couple of fairly militant atheists in there that I would still consider friends. There's a couple of pagans in there. There's a couple of Buddhists in there. It's like, how would I have you know yeah. known these people otherwise? Yep. Huge variety of people across the political spectrum. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And when you move, you will still find people that are on your side and on the other side, because <laughs> I've gone through that over the last couple of years. As a pastor, I think it's really important for me to have some kind of grounding outside of the church. It's very easy, I think, for a pastor to just kind of get stuck in this Christian ghetto where the only people you know are Christians and you really lose touch with the world around you. And so anytime I move, I try to find a literally a place where I can plug in to the community and just know people who are not connected to the church that I serve. And so when I moved here, I live outside of uh, New Orleans, Louisiana. I did have crawfish for dinner. I figured that that would be very Cajun of me, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm right outside of New Orleans. And when we moved here four years ago, the community I got connected with was my local comic shop, which has a, a gaming room to the side. And that's when I got into gaming. And so for me, this has been my way not just to rest and relax, but also to stay connected with the world I'm trying to serve. Uh, to remind me of who the people are around me. I don't go in there preaching and handing out tracts or anything like that. I go there just to be a friend. I go there just to be present. And as a pastor, that's been really, really helpful just to know the community that I serve better. Well, it's the in it but not of it thing that's referenced in Scripture, right? Sure. If we just stay in the Christian echo chamber bubble, what use are we? Now, I didn't go in telling them I was a pastor. <laughs> they, <laughs> you let them they, find that out after you were already friends with them? Yeah, I don't. I, I frankly don't tell too many people that. You know, I've had people ask me, what do you do for a living? And I say, uh, you might not like me if I told you. Just give me some time first, you know. And uh, I remember when they found out, I'd been playing Dungeons & Dragons there for, I don't know, six months. And they said, wait, you're you're a pastor? And you're playing Dungeons and Dragons? I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, it's weird, isn't it? But, you know, we're having fun, so don't, don't sweat it. It's, uh, it's a great way to stay connected. We mentioned before about how to get involved in gaming. And we said pretty much it's a book and some imagination. That's really about all it takes in, on the physical side of things. You'll need some dice. Uh, usually these are specialty dice, but there are plenty of games that just use your standard six-sided cubic dice that you can pick up five for a dollar at your local five and dime or Walmart or what have you. Pull them out of board games. Yeah, whatever you need. Other times there's um, a set of polyhedral dice that you can pick up at your local hobby store. You can get them for like three to five bucks for a basic set of them. Yeah. If you're getting involved for the first time and you've done what I think is the best way to get involved, which is to ask somebody who 
likes playing role-playing games, hey, can you run a game for me? I want to get into this hobby or want to try it. Use their dice. They should be more than willing to share. And trust me, they'll have enough for you. Oh, yeah. I, I don't know what it is about <laughs> gamers, but we tend to have bags full of dice because dice are irresistible. Yeah, I have three fist-sized bags of dice within arm's reach of me right now. Yeah, I think it's just they're fun and fiddly, and you want to have they enough for everybody. They make such pretty ones, too. I've got some neat ones from Kickstarter that are I'm looking forward to if the guy ever gets his finishing process yeah. ironed out. You develop a strange sense of dice lust. I'm not sure if that's a sin or not, but yeah. <laughs> it, it probably is, but at the same time... It's some kind of greed or covetousness, maybe? <laughs> I've always justified it to myself as, well, if I sit down at a table with a bunch of new players, I want to be able to, you know, open my dice bag and say, take what dice you need. Yeah. But don't get me wrong. At some point when you've got the tub full of dice, you're probably over the when top. When you have you enough know? for 750 new players, it may be time to stop. <laughs> Seriously. And <laughs> I know people like that. But really, you don't need that many. There's a little tiny box of polyhedral dice ranging from four-sided up to 20-sided dice. That's really all you need to get started. You may want some extra of the six and ten-sided ones. Uh, the six-sided ones, as Grant mentioned earlier, are extremely easy to come by. The ten-sided ones, you can usually come up with those in the hobby stores pretty easily. Yeah. And the reason why you would want extras of some of them is so you can play a wider variety of systems without having to be inconvenienced, basically. Yeah. That's really about all you need to get started. I mean, you've got pencils and paper, and that's about all you need. Sometimes people will use mats or maps on the table, that's really just kind of as a visual aid. Some games require it because the game is very tactical. It's all about moving around on the map and doing things on the map. But by and large, you can get by with a lot of theater of the mind role-playing. Other stuff doesn't use a map or any visuals at all. It's entirely in the mind. Many times, players will kind of switch between them if they feel they need some visual aids. Otherwise, they'll just ignore it and kind of play it out in their heads. So you really don't need much. And like I said, I think the best way to get into the hobby or to learn about the hobby firsthand is to ask somebody who you know plays, hey, will you run a game for me or can I try a game that would be good for new players, etc. I would not say jump into an existing campaign, a long-running story that people are telling over multiple sessions. See if you can get something run just for you and maybe even other new players because you'll have fun learning it without any pressure or any expectations from previous events that are happening. It'll kind of all be about you and your chance to learn, and the pace can go as slowly as you need it to. I can mention a few other opportunities. If you really want to try this kind of game, you can go online. On Mad Adventurers, there are always pickup games people are playing. You can even tweet one of us, and if we can't run a game for you, we know somebody that can. Mm -hmm. With Things like Google Plus and Skype that are free online, it is so easy. You don't even have to have the dice. You can use online dice rollers, you know. So it's very easy to get, get in a game online. Or sometimes at local game shops, uh, comic shops, I've even heard at libraries, they will have organized play where you can go, someone that knows the game is trying to introduce it to players, and so they kind of teach the rules along the way. And I've run some some events locally like that um, at my local game shop and even at my church, believe it or not. So there are chances out there to get involved if you really want to. Even if you live in a small town, you might be surprised. One other thing that I would add, if you are going to do this very old school and you're just going to grab a bunch of friends and none of you have ever tried this before... 
you want one GM and three to five players. Any less than that, and you're not going to have enough interaction. Any more than that, and it's going to start getting unwieldy. Yeah. Four players and one game master is probably the sweet spot. Perfect. Yeah, I would say three and a half players in one GM. It can <laughs> yeah. work really well with three or four. Uh, especially for new gamers, I think that's true. And yeah. my rule for online play is whatever group I'm comfortable running for, minus one, just to mm. handle you know, the vagaries of Skype connections and not being able to see each other and that sort of thing. Right. I will say that gaming, by its nature, it's not a hobby that sets people off by themselves and makes them loners. It is inherently a group activity. And that makes it great as a church activity. It makes it great as a family activity. There's a family in my church. Uh, it's a guy who has been playing since D&D first came out, the basic set, back in the mid to late 70s. And he and his wife and his teenage daughter regularly play. And it's awesome. You know, I do want to throw one other thing in there because some people may, this may be the first episode of an RPG podcast they've ever heard. If you get into this hobby and you find that you like it and you want to find more material to kind of help you get better or deal with situations that you find in play or give you ideas that you wouldn't have had before, I doubt you'd find a hobby that has a better podcasting scene than tabletop role-playing games. You may find one with a larger one, but not a better one. There's a lot of RPG podcasts beyond just ours that are out there that have been running for a very long time. Yeah. They run the gamut of work safe to very much not work safe and everything from actual plays, which are just recorded gaming sessions to advice. So you're going to have to do some research on your own and figure out what you're comfortable with. We've recommended several over past episodes, but there's a lot of good stuff out there. Yeah. I'll recommend, too, over on the Mad Adventure Society, kind of the flagship podcast of the website there is called Pottlebat, which is the word tabletop backwards. And uh, that's an unscripted, just two guys talking about gaming, and it's a lot of fun. The themes vary widely from episode to episode, and I've been on one episode of that before where we were talking about what's it like being a beginning game master and what have you learned over time. And also another one, which is Pottlebat Yelp, which is the word play backwards. Um, that's a live play podcast. And what I love about that one is it's edited. All the awkward moments are cut out. So you can actually oh, thank hear the story happening very smoothly. And I was actually, uh, I participated in the very first uh, Yelp that they did, which was one of their Star Wars RPG games. And so uh, I recommend both of those to your listeners uh, heartily. Excellent. Uh, and we'll certainly put links to those in the show notes for this episode so yeah definitely if you can't remember how to spell puddle bat and i certainly can't it'll be right there now one thing you mentioned earlier was gaming as a church and that's something i've had a little bit of experience with when i first said publicly from the pulpit that uh i was playing these sorts of games i can't remember why it came up but a few people knew already i had a few folks come up to me that were really kind of curious and wanted to know well, what is that and who are the people you play with? And so I actually ran a game at my church on Sunday afternoons. It was once a month after worship. We would have lunch, and then some of the guys from the local shop would come, and some of the folks from church would stay. And I just want you to imagine this in your in your mind. We had two men over 60 from our church. One, uh, I guess he was a 14-year-old at the time from the church, and then three guys from the comic shop who really had no ties to our church or to any church significantly. And there I was running the game in my suit and tie after church. Well, I probably took my tie off, but it was 
a really eclectic group and we had a ton of fun. And so what's been interesting is those guys have continued to stay in touch and ask about one another and want to get another game together. And so you might be surprised how that would jive with your church community. And for the record, it was Dungeons and Dragons that we were playing in the church building and it didn't burn down. So there you go. (laughs) If you have concerns about genres or particular storytelling tropes, uh, obviously there are a lot of Christians who are concerned about fantasy elements in particular. First of all, listen to our first episode. I will apologize again for the sound quality. We had no idea how to record a podcast. It was our very first episode and we tackled the biggest topic we possibly could. Uh, (laughs) So there you go. And we were also very nervous. Oh man. Yeah. So much nervous. <laughs> terrified. <laughs> Completely terrified. I'm going to have to go back and listen to it now. Okay. <laughs> Consider yourself warned. Yeah. But yeah. We covered a lot of great material in there, but... Yeah, I'm very happy with the with the we content, just not so much with our demeanor or our audio quality. <laughs> it was bad. But we directly addressed a lot of those concerns in that episode. We're not necessarily going to go over them again here. I'd recommend listening to that if you're really concerned about it. If you're really worried about it, Don't be afraid to find a role-playing game that is in a different genre entirely. If you don't like fantasy, maybe go with something like a a 30s pulp adventure story. That's a really fun, safe one. Everybody can kind of relate to that mystery man, not quite superhero, mad science-y kind of... Indiana Jones-y, two-fisted kind of thing. Radio pulp drama stuff. That's a ton of fun. If you have a particular setting that you're comfortable with, like, you know, maybe you're not really okay with fantasy, but you really like Star Trek or Star Wars, there are published games for those settings that are pretty good. Pretty good, man. I love them. That's my wheelhouse. (laughs) Edge of the Empire for Star Wars in particular is very good. Oh, yeah, man. Love it. There will be something that meets what you like. Trust me. I, I, you know, maybe you don't like anything at all fantastical, but you really like westerns, I mentioned Aces and Eights. There are plenty of games that are all about that western genre. If you like Cold War drama and spy stuff, trust me, there are dozens of spy games out there. Anything from kind of the the man from uncle level wackiness to very serious gritty stuff. Yeah, you can go from the man from uncle all the way up to John le Carre. Yeah. And, you know, stop at any of the points indicated by Tom Clancy or James Bond in the middle. Exactly. Whatever you want to play and whatever you feel comfortable with playing, and this kind of gets to the the weaker brother argument that we have talked a lot about on the show that I think most Christians will be familiar with. If you're not comfortable with something, we're not going to sit there and say, no, you need to step out of your comfort zone immediately and get into it. Start where you are comfortable. We have a lot of arguments in that first episode about why a lot of those fears about fantasy in particular are unfounded, but... If those fears persist, just go around them. Yeah, don't worry about it. The hobby is big enough to include you, too. Trust me. And I'll interject something here, too, and this is something they've talked a lot about on Pottlebat. If you are playing a game, maybe you've been playing four or five sessions, and something comes up in the game that makes you uncomfortable, maybe there's a situation in which your character is placed... Maybe there's things talked about you're uncomfortable with. Go to your game master and tell them you're uncomfortable. Most game masters, everyone I've ever played with, is very open. They don't want to offend people. They don't want to make people uncomfortable. And so if it's something that makes you uncomfortable, that community is such that you can go and say, you know, that kind of made me uncomfortable. Could we avoid that kind of situation, if at all possible, in the future? 
people listen and they cooperate because they want you to enjoy it. It's not about them. It's about the whole group participating together to make a story that you all enjoy. One of the things that's really nice about gaming in particular is everybody enjoys it if everybody's enjoying it. Mm -hmm. If somebody stops enjoying it, it actually starts to drag down the enjoyment of the other people at the table. So in any kind of a healthy gaming group, and yeah, there are some unhealthy ones out there, but I think they're probably in the minority. But in any sort of healthy gaming group, if something is getting in the way of your enjoyment or making you uncomfortable, that's a problem for the whole group. Right. And they're going to want to address it. And if you're playing with friends, remember, these are friends you're playing with. They're there for you. You can bring that up and say, listen, this is not working for me. It's not comfortable. And frankly, if you're not playing with friends, you probably will be playing with friends in a few weeks. Yeah, mm -hmm. there's that. All right. Anything else that we want to bring up or talk about? Is there anything we feel we need to explain about role-playing games? I feel like there might we might need to say something regarding character creation. We didn't really talk about that a lot. Yeah. Okay. So let, let's talk about character creation for a minute because you're right. We did skip over that. We said originally that generally there's one person who kind of runs the world that everybody's playing in and everyone else is playing characters. By and large, you get to create that character. In game scenarios where we're pressed for time, like, you know, it's a convention. Conventions are big on pre-generated characters where you just kind of walk up and get handed a character or your choice of characters that the GM or the person running that session has created for you as a time saver. That's kind of a special case. By and large, usually the first session of a game will be sit down and create your character, depending on how how many numbers and stats there are in, in that process. <laughs> you might play in that first session. You might just do character creation. Trust me, every podcast about role-playing games has done multiple episodes about character creation because it's that big first step where you decide what the story is going to be about, what things you want to bring to a particular character, if there's any theme you want to explore, and what fun and what kind of fun you're going to have in play after that. The exact mechanics of character creation will vary wildly from game to game. You can have everything from a multi-sheet document that you've got all these different boxes with numbers and descriptions in them to reference down to something that'll fit on a 3x5 card. And I've played different games where those things are true, each of them. Both of them are fantastic. I've, I've got the character sheet for Peter's game right in front of me, in fact, and it is three pages and I have a very simple character. Whereas, you know, some of the games that I've run recently, literally there are four numbers to keep track of. Well, the, and the Savage World game that we were playing, we all had a single-sided character sheet and that was enough. Yeah, it's all you need. One of the things that I love about character creation and, and really about role-playing games is that when you make a character, it's always better if they have some kind of flaw to them, mm -hmm. I feel. And I, I like to watch my characters throughout the story, whether it's a three-session arc or a 300-session arc, which I've played before. <laughs> <laughs> so has it's, Grant. I never have, but yeah. It's, it's neat to watch those characters progress and go through... Their story, and sometimes their stories end very redemptively, sometimes they end very tragically, sometimes they're cut very short. Just as an example of how different characters you can make, the very first character I ever created was for Dungeons & Dragons 4th Edition. I was new to the game, 
And uh, my character was based on the story of Gideon in the Bible. I'd been studying Gideon's life. I was preaching on him. And I thought, what a, a strange and actually kind of tragic story he had. So I built this holy warrior around the character of Gideon. My most recent character that I rolled up for a one session last week, I thought, what's a character I would never want to play for a really long time? It's just sit down and play at one time. And it was in the Star Wars universe, and it was an anthropomorphic lizard man who hated all other species. He was a racist. And I knew he was going to be put in a squad with other species of beings. And so I thought how interesting that would be to enter into that place and into, the, into that mindset and to work through this problem of race from the other side. I'm preaching on racism this Sunday, just so happens. There you go. <laughs> but you can enter these different characters. You can face different kinds of issues and problems, and it forces you to think through them in a, in a different way because you have to think about it from that character's perspective, how they think, what they value, what they want to do. And I find that very fascinating as, a, I guess, a student of culture and people and the mind, you know? Absolutely. We actually have two sets of resources for that if you really want to kind of hear more about that. The first is we did a 14-part series on the seven deadly sins and the seven heavenly virtues. It's our virtues and vices series where we went into each of these different sins or virtues and kind of broke them down both in terms of what they are theologically and how they can come into play in a character or in a setting or in role-playing in, in particular. Those sins in particular are great ways to kind of have a, a real simple idea of what a character's flaw is. Pride versus envy versus gluttony. Take it one step further, kind of give it a little form, and you've got a great flaw in a character that helps hold them back and is something they can overcome and gives you a real sense of success as that character plays out. Uh, the other thing is our episode 50, which is actually a two-parter because it was a long two-hour live recording we did to celebrate 50 episodes, was all about making interesting characters. So if you really kind of want to get more into that, that's another great resource. Like Peter said, there are other podcasts out there in the role-playing game genre. All of them have done how to make interesting or flawed characters. It's a big topic of conversation because role-playing is ultimately sitting down and pretending to be someone else. It's often very tempting to play someone who is perfect and who doesn't have any problems. And it's kind of fun at first. You know, I enjoyed turning on cheat codes when I first started playing video games because, hey, it's, it's fun and awesome and I can't lose. And it turns out to be really shallow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> same it gets thing boring with, fast. Same thing with regular role-playing game characters or really any fictional character we don't remember the perfect ones we remember the ones who had something hard to overcome and who did it or who failed because of their tragic flaw mm -hmm. shakespeare didn't have a lot of perfect characters he just had good characters all right anything else that we need to touch on because i think we've hit most everything that people need to kind of understand a role-playing game without having played one yet no, I think the character creation was probably the missing piece of the puzzle there. Okay, good. Jason, thank you again for coming on. It's been a real pleasure to have you. Ah, you're more than welcome. I really enjoyed it. I enjoy what you guys do, and I look forward to maybe doing it again one of these days. And we'd love to have you back. Yeah, we, we really would. If people want to find you online, again, madadventurers.com. Yeah, 
MattAventures.com is a great place. Um, you can also tweet me on Twitter. Uh, my handle there is at Wood, W-O-O-D, underscore Jason, J-A-S-O-N-D, as in David. And you can even email me. You can email me at Jason at MadCleric.com. Again, that's a site I, I used to blog on. Maybe one of these days I'll get back on there, but the email address is still active, and, and I check that all the time, and uh, that's what I use for gaming. So feel free to to email me and that'd be great. Excellent. And for any new listeners who are just listening to this episode for the first time, take a look at the show notes for the resources we've mentioned and take a look at the comments where hopefully our listeners have kind of talked about these same topics, you know, why they enjoy role-playing games and why role-playing games have been an important part of their life and what role-playing games are to them. Look there, you'll, you'll get a lot more information from our listener community. And if you are a new listener to the show, we're really happy that somebody's given you this episode to listen to or that you found us through it. Yeah, welcome. We're really glad to have you. You're awesome. All right. I think we're going to call it here. Jason, thank you again. I'm really looking forward to having you back. And from all of us here at Saving the Game, have a good one. Bye, everybody. Good night. This podcast episode is a production of Saving the Game and may be redistributed under a Creative Commons non-commercial, non-derivative license, so long as appropriate credit is given. Our music is by Ryan Humphrey. Saving the Game is syndicated through inroadsministries.com, rpgpodcasts.com, stitcher.com, and iTunes. To hear past episodes and to connect with us or our community of listeners, visit our website at savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, and happy gaming.